Hey folks, Seth here. Don't skip over this bit because we have some important announcements. Important enough that we're putting them right at the beginning of the show so you can't miss them. So unfortunately we've reached a point with this project where we're not going to be able to continue season three without asking for a little bit of help. Right now, with the exception of our lovely patrons, uh, this project is fully funded by yours truly, um, and it's just come to a point where that's no longer sustainable for me. So I am coming to you, my lovely rad child community, uh, for some help. So there are several ways you can help us out, both financially and otherwise. First and foremost, we just launched a Kickstarter campaign. If you're not familiar with Kickstarter, it's basically an online platform for fundraising. And the fun thing about Kickstarter is not only do you get the satisfaction of donating to a cause that you think is important. You also get awesome rewards. Uh, there are different rewards depending on how much you donate. We've got all kinds of things. We've got things like buttons, stickers, postcards, children's books, and we even have some exclusive rewards. Things like uh, some virtual story time and sing along with yours truly, custom illustrations, by children's book illustrator and author Lloyd Jones. We have a virtual story time with author Leslie Kimmelman and even a kid's dance class. We've got it all. So that's definitely the most straightforward way that you could help us out. And you can do that by going to www.kickstarter.com and searching for Rad Child Podcast Season 3. Or you can also find the link on any of our social media. The next best way to support us is by making a monthly donation on our Patreon page. Basically, you can sign up to give as little as a dollar a month and get some awesome rewards like bloopers, monthly coloring pages, story time with Seth, where I'll be reading one of the books that we talked about during the month. We'll also be offering a limited book club where we'll be reading one of the books that we discussed during the month, one of the children's books, and we'll talk about it. And at higher tiers, you can even get physical items in the mail, like children's books and other goodies. We also offer merchandise discounts, and for a limited time while our Kickstarter campaign is running, there's a little special going on where if you sign up at any tier, we will automatically send you one of our postcards with a very cute design of a little dinosaur that says, Make Hate Extinct, uh, with a personalized thank you note on it, as well as a Rad Child podcast button. So definitely don't miss out on that. And you can do that by going to www.patreon.com forward slash radchildpodcast or just going on patreon.com and searching for radchildpodcast. We are the only one. If you're not able to support us financially, that is totally okay and understandable. There are some other ways that you can help support us, one of which is sharing the Kickstarter page. Um, if you can share it directly with people, like in a private message, in an email, that's really the best way to do it. We also have on our Kickstarter page and our Facebook page a pre-written message if you find that helpful as well. You can also, of course, always share our Kickstarter on social media as well, just like on your Facebook wall or something like that. Another thing you can do to help support us is just spread the word, share the podcast with a friend, um, just post about why you like it, things like that. And finally, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice, uh, as well as on Facebook. Those ratings really help us out. So yeah, thank you so much for all of your support and all the support you've shown up until now. Uh, it's been a really, really awesome ride, and I hope that it doesn't end. So thanks again, guys. Now it's time for the show. I'm your host, Seth Day. I use he, they pronouns, and you're listening to Rad Child Podcast. (laughs) 
All right. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Rad Child Podcast. Today, we're talking about a topic that is near and dear to my heart. We're talking a little bit about ADD and ADHD. So yeah, I'm just going to jump right in. And I'm just going to have my lovely guests introduce themselves. So we're just going to do our name, our pronouns, where you're from, your relationship with kids, and your relationship with ADD slash ADHD, whichever one uh, is relevant to you. Well, cool. I am Jasmine Martin. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. Let's see where I'm from. I'm originally from Springfield, South Dakota. Grew up in a tiny, tiny little town on the edge of the river, which was great. But I live in Ames, Iowa now. I'm pursuing my doctorate. Uh, in mathematics. My relationship with kids, I am a parent of a three and a half year old and plan on more kids. Uh, But I'm also the sort of grown up that kids have always gravitated toward uh, because I'm basically a kid myself. I'm tiny and adorable, just like a child. I was diagnosed with ADD, uh, inattentive type ADHD, depending on what kind of literature uh, you're familiar with when I was in fourth grade, so nine years old. I had been struggling with it, actually, in school especially, since before I can remember, but definitely since first grade-ish. So uh, my entire scholastic career has been colored by my ADD. I was bullied by some teachers uh, about it and wound up being diagnosed when I was nine, actually against my mom's, or without my mom's consent, maybe not against her. Her wishes, but my teacher finally called in a therapist and was like, okay, somebody please tell me how to help this child and diagnosed me with ADD. And I wound up medicating until I was 14 when I was like, I have life figured out now. I don't need help. Proceeded with very mixed success through high school and undergrad, which was really difficult at times. But later as a breastfeeding parent slash grad student slash university teacher slash researcher, I understandably began to have trouble handling everything that I had put on my plate, and I started experiencing really awful anxiety approaching just normal daily tasks. And so I finally got up the courage to talk to my doctor about it, and I wrote down a list of like 10 or 15 situations where I was experiencing really terrible anxiety. And the moment I had written it down, I was like, oh, this is ADD, actually. Like, (laughs) wait a second, all of these are directly related to having ADD. Okay, so maybe I should actually think about how I'm coping with that first. Uh, And I talked to my doctor about medicating again, which by the way, medication is not at all necessary for, for anyone in particular, but for myself, it helps me manage my life a lot, a lot better. And I started talking with a therapist at that point. So now I, I am about three years into actively trying to cope with good coping mechanisms and doing pretty well as far as everything goes. Awesome. It's it's really interesting what you were saying about sort of being bullied by teachers because, and I don't know why I thought this was like a unique experience to me as someone with ADHD, but I had a teacher once, she was a first year teacher. I think she quit after her first year. I think I probably had something to do with that. She was a first year teacher in the first grade, which is when I was diagnosed. And she, you know, she told me that I was a bad kid which we're going to talk about a little bit later, but basically was like, you're a bad kid and made me sit facing the wall opposite the chalkboard for the whole year and then expected me and then expected me to learn. My teachers very similarly would sit me up in the corner, at least facing the board. No, I was facing the wall. And then she was like, I don't understand why he's not doing well in school. And I'm like, because I can't see the board. They tried. uh, But like my school had been downgraded because of monetary issues. And so they were teaching fourth and fifth grade in the same room. 
And wow, if that's ever a great situation to be in, as an, like I learned so much fifth grade that year. My teachers were just boggled why I couldn't get anything done. Hmm. They sat me up in a corner so that I wouldn't be distracted by the other kids. Little did they know there was a window in that corner. And outside that window was a tree with squirrels in it. And that's what I remember of fourth grade. <laughs> I'm Moira Stevenson. She, her, and here in Quebec, also Elle. Where am I from? Montreal, Quebec. Same place as Seth, right? <laughs> My relationship with kids. Well, I just did a calculation here. I have been working with children for 25 years. A lot of years. I started as a babysitter, and then I did a co-op in kindergarten class. And then I was a children's entertainer. Then I was a tutor. And now I'm a child psychologist. So yeah, I, I really like kids. I think they're super fun to hang out with. My relationship with ADD and ADHD, I personally don't have ADD or ADHD, but I've been, since becoming a child psychologist, I've been working more and more with children that have ADHD. I'm just going to use ADHD as like a blanket term just for now. And I've been really delving more and more into how to help children and families um, where a child has ADHD. I also work um, at a pediatric rehabilitation center here in Montreal called the Lethbridge Leighton Mackay, where I work with kids that have physical disabilities and sensory limitations. And in that work as well, I'm more and more uh, working with kids who also have ADHD along with other um, physical difficulties. So I think that pretty much captures my relationship with ADD and ADHD. I really find it fascinating in terms of how this neural difference plays itself out in day-to-day -day life um, with these people. And that there are things, I think that's what you were talking about, Jasmine, that there are things that can be done that, are, that can be so helpful, but if you don't know it, you don't know to do it, you know, so. Yeah, definitely. And I think like sort of like Jasmine, like you were talking about, there's, you know, like medication can be helpful for some people, but not for everyone. And there are like, like there are so many different things, just like with like lots of different kinds of arrow, you know, differences. Like I think there are lots of different things. Like some people find like certain like diets really helpful for them or like, you know, some people find exercise or like there's all these different things that you can do. And I feel like it's not a one size fits all solution at all. But it, yeah, I always find it really interesting sort of what how like different things are helpful to different different people. I'm Dylan Caput. I use they them pronouns. I am originally from um, the DC area, but I consider myself a New Yorker after eight wonderful years. They're currently located in Pittsburgh, but having trouble forming a relationship with it. So my relationship with kids, I've been a special educator, elementary special educator for many years and love it. And I'm currently working on a doctorate in special ed with the goal of getting back in the classroom to teach sex ed to kids with autism. There's a huge need there, yeah. And all the research is about why we need it and nobody's doing it. It's a bunch of researchers who are like, this is necessary. And everyone's like, and someone else will take care of it. And nobody has taken care of it. So that's where I hope to come in because I'm actually very interested in like creating materials and then doing teacher training and implementing them myself. This is the longest I've gone without being in the classroom in many years and I miss it. Um, and I am really ready to to do that. So um, my relationship with ADD, 
ADHD um, is twofold. One, uh, it's a diagnosis I got at six, for me at least, and I think Seth, this is part of why Heather wanted me to talk to you, is that my ADD and ADHD diagnosis are pretty inextricably linked for me with being autistic. And they kind of got, I got that diagnosis as a young girl, I think instead of an autism diagnosis that I needed. So kind of growing up, coming to terms with how those things coexist in my brain and my body. Um, but also a lot of my work with kids has been in um, in schools that are meant for kids who are labeled as twice exceptional. So a lot of those kids have ADD, ADHD, autism, sometimes all three, um, and also some sort of like learning disability or social need or social emotional need. So really meeting the um, very unique intersection between like a lot of these kids who have stuff going on, but are also very, very bright. And um, so it's just been interesting, I think, for me to help a lot of these kids navigate their stuff as someone who has those diagnoses. I have been... I, I I really do credit my success academically to the fact that I've been medicated for 20 years. I don't think I would have made it through high school or college or a master's program or the first semester of PhD school without it. Yeah, same for me. I am definitely one of those people who's like pro giving medication a shot. I think that it can be very life changing when your brain is not cooperating. And I really, I'm, I'm very like happy with the fact that I'm on stimulants and plan to uh, continue that relationship. So yeah, happy to, I think we'll talk more about that as we go. Sorry, Jasmine, did you have something to add? Yeah, I wanted to jump in on the autism ADD uh, sort of interplay because you mentioned the sort of over uh, diagnosis of kids, especially at the time, I don't know what age you all are. I'm 27. So I was nine in 2002 uh, when I was diagnosed. But um, I, as an adult, very much appreciate the process that my diagnosis went through. Other kids in my school were not diagnosed. And my mom was not about to ask my doctor about it. Uh, in part because I forgot to mention earlier that my sister, my younger sister, my stepsister, also has ADHD, capital H, and had just wild symptoms that I did not have. And so in among my family, I was not the one who stood out with this condition. But there's a big similarity and sort of interplay between autism and ADHD, I am aware as an adult. And my teacher knew that at the time, maybe didn't know that in particular, but recognized some of my symptoms as autistic symptoms. And so had called in a therapist with the intent of having me diagnosed with autism. Uh, And the therapist came in and did all of their tests and came out and said, they don't have autism. They have ADHD. They need to talk to a doctor about medicating. This is like, they need this. And my mom was furious because she had not consented to this. But as an adult, like that changed my relationship with school. And that changed, oh God, my relationship with teachers and and so much that that made better for me by my teacher overstepping. Even if that teacher was the same one who was causing so many issues for me, uh, like 
by trying to help in ways that we're hurting. Moira, did you have something to say? Yeah, I just wanted to add something because I think it's really important and I hear it coming up and I just want to emphasize this, that as someone who does psychological assessments of children um, in my private practice, being figuring out what's going on in specifically a female who's got symptoms of ADHD and symptoms of autism, those are one of the hardest assessments that we do. It's so difficult because there's overlapping symptoms with ADHD and autism. Like you guys probably know better than I do, but like being able to follow a conversation, right? That can be hard for someone with ADHD. That can be hard for someone with autism. And then just to add complexity to the issue, our tests for autism are largely based on boys having autism. So they don't really fish out more the representation that we see in girls. Um, And that's just due to how these tests were developed over the years. So when we have those, that kind of like trifecta, I guess we could call it. um, It's, it is, it is tough. It is tough. And it's nice to hear Jasmine that you, even though it wasn't done ethically, it sounds like you were given the appropriate testing, which is just so crucial. It's so crucial. And I want parents to understand that because oftentimes teachers are observing only part of it, right? They're only seeing you at school, for example. So they don't know what else is going on. Oh God, they don't know how many hours per day you've spent looking at this worksheet. It's actually really interesting because one of the, we just prior to this, um, I did an episode about autism and we were just talking about, or there was two of them and they both identified as female. And we were talking about that, that, you know, difference between there's this idea that like autism is like a boy's disorder and like, and also that like girl, you know, one of them was speaking from her own experience and saying that like, she felt like she was a lot better at sort of like masking. Yeah, thank you. I couldn't think of the word masking. We, those of us who work with girls with autism know that word very well. Huh? Thank you. I just want, so I, you know, I think it's, it's interesting. And I realize this is not an autism session. But I, you know, I think that so my mom's a psychiatrist, and my dad has ADHD. And so I think the thought was just like, okay, we're this is a kid who's having trouble. Dad has ADHD, like, let's do all those tests. And, um, you know, I, I, I am always so I, I also like, I was not I did not access like conversations about autism, until after I transitioned. And some of my symptoms became like more pronounced on testosterone and then then and like then suddenly i had access to to these conversations and you know i no surprise to anyone on this podcast but like the number of autistic trans and gender nonconforming folks is huge yep just like i think the way that we navigate the world as people who like don't care about social norms has to do with us like being ourselves. And then later we're like, oh, now we have the language for this. But, you know, I think it's interesting that we're talking about testing, because I think that like, even my mom, who's a psychiatrist, and definitely on the spectrum herself, was like, oh, dad has ADHD, like here are the tests we're gonna run. And just, you know, then there was this whole understanding of like, you know, this kid is just like a quirky girl. And it's just like gonna grow up and grow out of it. And, you know, I just like never did that. There was no growing out. There was no growing out, only growing up. And like, I, I'm i very lucky in the special ed world that like, these are conversations people are having. And I know that's a huge privilege because like I have peers in 
involved in programs that are very different from mine who are like, I can't tell anyone that I'm having these struggles because they won't understand. And, you know, so I think it's a huge privilege to be struggling with these things in a field where people are learning to support kids with these things. Um, But also I'm remembering now that my actual diagnosis, I think, was what is now 2E and was GTLD. And I think it was, which stands for Gifted and Talented Learning Disabled. And it was like, it was like, it was like ADD, ADHD, and like some, some learning needs. But I think that like, both of those things were just coded language for like girl with autism, and we don't know what to do. <laughs> Thank you all for sharing. I, I had suspected that we might all have a lot to say. So I am, this is, this is also just like a loaded topic. And there's so much to, so much to talk about. Um, so I'm kind of want to jump into a little bit. And I don't know necessarily if for this particular question, I don't know if someone, you know, wants to take it, but I'm, I'm curious sort of like at a kind of like a brain level, like what's going, you know, what is ADD? What is ADHD? Like what's going on there? And I don't know if, you know, if someone wants to kind of take this and then if other people have things to add, maybe. There are some words that I have discovered as an adult that my whole life I've been trying to describe the symptoms of this, like, no, you don't understand. I don't perceive time the way you do. Like, it's just... Well, oh God, the Doctor Who, the ball of wibbly wobbly, like that's so accurate to the way that my time is that it'll stretch and compress in ways that other people don't feel. Okay, like I, I literally right now, like I never knew that that was, any, I thought that was just me. <laughs> I also think that the more I learn about ADD and ADHD, and again, I, I know for me, this is also a spectrum thing, is that like so many of us know that it's in our brain but like feel the symptoms in our body like i'm a very physical person and i can like tell you when i'm gonna have a hard day if like i wake up and feel off in my body and i know that it's like a brain chemistry thing but it's so much of it is tied to like oh suddenly i'm like anxious and like need to move and like and and i know like that it's my brain doing things but i'm like oh okay my body is giving me signals that my brain is having a hard time Dylan, do you have a diagnosis of hyperactivity as well i think i have like 17 diagnoses (laughs) Um, but i think i actually have i think technically i have both add and adhd because this was in 2000 before it was just ADD inattentive and ADD combined. Uh, technically, I think now, if you like read the DSM, it'd be ADD combined. But I think I had both diagnoses at six. Do you want me to do the DSM spiel as the psychologist here today? Sure, do it. Well, I'll tell you how I conceptualize it, and then you could you could tell me if you totally agree or not. But yeah, like in the DSM-5, you know, we have this kind of umbrella term of attention deficit. So there's the ADD and the ADHD. The way I see it is that when we're talking about more the inattentive or ADD, no H, there, I think of it, we have this expression in French, uh, dans la lune, like on the moon, like out of it, spaced. I think that represents that kind of inattentive feel you see in people who have ADD. Whereas when there's ADHD, you have more of this physical representation of it. And that's why I was asking Dylan for you, because when I'm working with kids that have ADHD, we'll talk a lot about how it feels in their body, you know, and that like that internal motor that's running, running, running. 
all the time. But I can also tell you what it feels like in my body when I can't pay attention. Like I, there definitely is, there definitely is the, like the bodily cue of like there, I can't look at something and focus like versus me. If I like, I'm a grad student now. And so I can tell you the difference between like me sitting down to write a paper without Adderall and me sitting down to write a paper with Adderall. Like I can sit in front of my computer and like stare at a screen with like an idea of what I want to write for 10 hours and not do it. Then I take an Adderall and I can write you 10 pages in three hours. And it's just like, I can tell you what that feels like in my body to, to do to not be focused versus to be focused. But I'm so glad to know that you're talking to kids about that. I've had that conversation with many, you know, of my students of like, what is it? Cause I think it, there really is a conversation of like, this is your diagnosis. What does it feel like in your body to, to have, you know, these things going on? And like, I very much have very similar conversations with autistic folks who like stim or feel overstimulated of like, I know that stuff is going on in your brain, but like I can feel my diagnoses in my body. That's really cool to know. Yeah. I'm, I just made a little note to make sure to ask my ADD folks as well. My therapist is consistently like, what, like pay attention to your body cues. And I'm like, I, I don't want to do that, but okay. It's so much easier to ignore them, but I'll get more into that later. I think I, I do want to finish my thing about the, the diagnoses of ADD and ADHD though. I don't want to forget because this thing is super Super important. With ADHD and ADD, we're talking about impairments in the executive functioning part of the brain. So the brain that's in charge of so, so, so many things. That is where most of the, let's, I'll put quotes here, deficits are or differences. I like that word better in kids with ADD. But these differences are often not well understood. So this is where you get a lot of bad reactions from parents or from teachers who don't really understand how that plays itself out in day to day life. Yeah, I know that like, it's I'm the I'm the odd one out in conversations with folks with these diagnoses always, because my executive functioning skills are like the one thing I don't struggle with. And I don't I don't know how I lucked into that because I look at my family members who like my dad is a hundred years late to everything and is completely disorganized. And like, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. I think, and I think that goes back to like masking as a kid. I think I just copied what other people were doing and figured it out. But I like now teach executive functioning to, to kids. And it is so, it is so hard to, to, to teach kids. Like this is how you use a calendar and this is how you, this is how you set a reminder. And it's such necessary parts of my life. Oh God. Like for me, I think, you know, I, like I said, I was diagnosed when I was very young. I was in the first grade. And I, I think that like some of the, the things like the fact that I have good executive functioning, I think wasn't natural to me, but I think I learned a lot of coping mechanisms that helped me like, like color coding my calendar and like certain tools and tricks, like writing, I write notes there literally uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight post-it notes on my desk right now. Um, Like I write notes about everything. I write lists about everything. And so I think part of it, like for, for me personally, I think the reason that my executive functioning is pretty good is because I like worked at it and learned some you know, they're like tools to help me uh, as well. You bring up such a good point that I hear so often um, when parents bring their children in for assessments, they'll say like, oh, but they're so organized. They're like obsessed with being organized. And I'm like, yes, because they can't actually just do it. <laughs> they have no choice. 
I also have, I, every single time I hear parents say, but my kid is so organized, I'm like, ask them about all the things going on in their brain. Because I promise you that any kid who has compensated organization skills is thinking a thousand things at all times. And the only way they are able to function, at least for me, like I'm up at 4am because my brain is thinking. And like, the only way I'm able to live my life is like, I have to write things down, I have to have a calendar, because I'm thinking about too many things, and I'm gonna forget. And I think that, like I've said to I've, I've like turned, I always, I don't know about you, Moira, but I have a hard time talking to parents without their kids in the room, because I think sometimes very problematic things are said. And so I will turn to the kid and I'm like, it, like, what are you feeling when you're doing these things? Like, what's going on in your brain when, when your parents are saying you're so organized and all the kids are always like, oh, uh, and they'll give you like a list of 10,000 irrelevant things. And you're like, that's why your kid needs to be organized because their brain is not organized. I like to describe it as my wife always gets on my case because I always have like 20 tabs open and I'm like, that's what my brain is. It's like, I've got 20 tabs. I've got like 20 different tabs open. I'm like, oh, I got to do that thing. And then that makes me think of this thing. And then that makes me think of this thing. And then there's like 20 tabs in my brain at like all times. Yeah. If you ever ask someone what they're thinking, like one time I was like, what are you thinking? And someone was like, oh, I'm not thinking anything. And I was like, I just, we, our friendship has to be over now because I just, we have nothing in common. If you are not thinking like I, we don't, I don't relate to you. I'm sorry. My partner for one thing is that my partner tells me all the benefits of just Sometimes it's great to just not think for a little while. And I'm like, oh, that must be so nice. But you can do that. I recently described to, uh, I don't know, probably a counselor, that that my thought process is like five wires. Five to seven to 12, whatever, wires that are constantly buzzing with inf- information. And my train of thought jumps between them and they are all over the place constantly. Like, um... If you've ever studied automata, I don't know if anybody knows, but but the real world, quantum computers uh, require a sort of, where it follows all of the possible trains out of a node at once. And that's how my brain is. It follows all of the possible nodes, all of the possible wires out of a given thought. And then among those, I have to choose what to actually invest in next but it just explodes every thought explodes into multiple wires of of thought like that meditation is not a thing that i've ever been able to achieve i think i need to give it a i could get you to meditate (laughs) my mom is obsessed with meditation and mindfulness and it's consistently like she's like you just need to relax dylan and i'm like i've never done that in my life like i probably i I don't, I don't know how to do that. Like, I'm sorry. I'm sure it's great for you, but like, I can't. We did an episode about meditation and mindfulness and I had someone who did the Zen practice, which is very much like trying to clear your mind. And I was just like, I could never, whenever I did like yoga or things like that, like I tried it, they just don't work for me personally. I know for a lot of people, they find them helpful. But for me, like, I would be like, I can't clear my mind. I'm like, okay, what am I making for dinner? I'm supposed to be clearing my mind. Okay, uh, what should I do tomorrow? Okay, I'm supposed to be clearing my mind. Like, it's just a constant like reminder of me to be like, you're supposed to not be thinking about anything. People are so zen. They're just like, that's the point. You let the, you have the thought and you let it go. And I'm like, no, but it's like five thoughts a second. You don't understand. That's setting the bar way too high, I think. <laughs> Jasmine, I heard you said that you so, you practice trying to be mindful. That's enough meditation probably. Oh yeah, it's very helpful. That's the amount that it helps me. Like yoga and being mindful of my body and things like that are very achievable for me. 
clearing my mind is not a thing that I think I'm capable of. I had a massive anxiety attack once where my train of thought went down to one wire and that was wild. But there's something beautiful, as much as I can only imagine how taxing it can be at times, I think there's something quite beautiful about the way the ADHD brain works. The way I describe it often to kids, I know I'm jumping ahead to a further question, sorry, Seth, is I'll talk about how like your brain is all lit up at the same time. And that's great. You can be so creative. You can think about all these different things until you have to sit down and do a specific task and then that's where you become quote disabled right because like without that requirement you're cool you know you're good you can have a bunch of different thoughts you know and there's nothing I don't think we should be problematizing that if you're as long as you're comfortable think having your brain work that way it's when it starts impact your functioning you can't actually do what you need to do and that's where things like medication can come in really handy or external tools for uh, executive functioning like we were just talking about with lists and post-its and everything so i just i think there's something i i I don't know maybe this is my little like criticism of the of my own world, the mindfulness, you know, third wave psychology world is that we sometimes set the bar just so unrealistically high. And then all you're living is failure and defeat because you're not able to do it. I just don't think it's reasonable. Uh, I think what what I often do um, for mindfulness meditation with kids is that we just talk about like observing yourself, you know, and observing your attention instead of trying to control it. Well, it's almost like what we were talking about, about like being aware of your body and like how you're like being, yeah. And I, I think that mindfulness is very different than meditation for me. A stranger once told me, like random stranger, I was on a chairlift at a ski area in Colorado and this man was high as a kite, asked me, was like asking me about my life. And I was like, oh, I study special ed. And he turns to me and dead serious. He goes, I think neurodiverse people are more evolved than the rest of us. And I think about that a lot. <laughs> I do, because I think there is like, I, you know, I, I work with neurodiverse kids who are just so in tune with their bodies and their thinking. And I'm like, even if my, like, I am so, uh, people tell me all the time, they're like, Dylan, you're so self-aware. And I'm like, yeah, I've worked hard for that. And I think there is truth in the fact that like there is a, we sure we work harder, but like that we are connected to ourselves in a way that I think a lot of people aren't and wish they could be. Anyway, so I, you know, I thank this, this rando for like sharing with me his perspective, because I think it's, I think it's true. And I, you know, I think that like, there is so much beauty in the neurodiversity of brains. So I love hanging out with neurodiverse folks. They're just like, I, I'm like, this is my preference. Honestly, it's, it's part of why I do what I do. I never thought that I would be able to be an academic because I struggled so much in school growing up, even though I loved school and I still love school. I want to be a professor and I, I am in a a doctoral program. Like I clearly enjoy what I'm doing. And the creativity and the adaptability of my brain is a major benefit to me in the kind of work that I do now, where I'm doing mathematical sort of abstract research, where finding the patterns between things is seriously important, massively important. And being able to have I I love the way that Moira said it about your whole brain being active, because that's such a benefit for me in my work. 
to be able to think about all of the mathematics and patterns and colors and and things all at the same time and draw connections between them. On that note, Jasmine, I love that. One of the things that I've learned about myself, and I can't tell you if this is a spectrum thing or an ADD thing, and I will never know, is that I don't love the feeling of discomfort. I I don't, that is one of the bodily feelings I just have not yet figured out how to sit with. And a lot of times what that means is that I am not afraid to have conversations with people that I think other people are afraid to have. So a lot of my self-advocacy in academia that, you know, comes from, hey, this made me feel weird. Let's talk about it. And it has actually helped me get where I want to get professionally to be able to stand up for myself in school. I teach kids. I'm like, actually, like, I know so many people who are like, I'm afraid of confrontation. And I'm not because I I have learned that sometimes confrontation when you're like, sit trying to sit with bad feelings is the right answer. I've tried to teach so many of the kids that I work with that actually in terms like, if something makes you feel weird, it's probably not right. And that standing up for yourself in school, if a teacher says something, if a peer says something, is actually like a skill. And it is something that I think we we need to teach better self-advocacy skills to kids with disabilities. I mean, just to kids in general, like, I mean, my, my wife is, so here in Quebec, we have uh, the education system is a little different where you, after high school, you can go to CEGEP before you go to university. And CEGEP is basically like an intermediate, we, in English, we kind of just call it college, um, but it's an intermediate sort of between high school and university. And uh, you can also like, for example, if I wanted to work in a daycare, I would get a certificate at a CEGEP. I wouldn't need to get a degree. So it's usually like you can get like certificates and things like that. And so that's where my wife is now. And mostly the people that are in CEGEP are like 17, 18, they're fairly young. And uh, with the exception of people who might be going back for something like my wife, who's, you know, 30. And so my wife has gone through two BAs, has these self-advocacy skills, and is constantly getting in fights with her teachers because she's like, you shouldn't be treating people like that. You shouldn't be like, like, just like sticking up for everybody. And has already like gone to the dean twice. Like, you know, and meanwhile, like, the, the she's you know she has a partner that she's been working on a lot of stuff with who is 17 and you know it's just like I don't like the teacher's treating me like crap but I don't know how to like say anything about it. and like we don't teach kids how to like and like also the idea that teachers are always right it's just like no they're adults are not always right <laughs> and I think that is a, a skill a learned skill that like some of us who are neurodiverse are just better at because I know like I again back to this I can feel it in my body when someone is is doing something like wrong or unjust or like mistreating me or has ideas and like I don't love that feeling and so I'm like let's talk about it and it has gotten me so much further in my life because I'm able to be like okay if something makes you feel weird address it and I know so many like neurotypical people who are like I'm never gonna say anything and I just I'm like why and so I think that like one of the things one of the stereotypes is that like you know we suck at being uncomfortable but actually I've like learned to use that in my you know as a strength and so I have worked really hard to teach kids like to to be comfortable being uncomfortable and then to use that as a, as a strength and I think that Jasmine we could talk more about it in academia all day oh, yeah. <laughs> like there's just 
there is just no like academia walks all over neurodiverse people it's just not created for us at all and so much of my work I, you know even in my first semester here has been like let's talk about how you teach a kid with autism because clearly you are clueless and like i'm 26 and you've never had you know the professors who have been professors for 20 years have never taught an autistic adult and i'm like well like, here's me teaching you how to teach me. Yep, where I am, uh, so last year was my first year in the PhD program where I am now. And it was the first year that I have ever advocated for myself preemptively, uh, going into classes and going into a new environment and being like, hi, everybody, I have ADD and I struggle with A, B, C, D, E. You can help me by doing A, B, C, D, E. And like, what more information do you need? Hello, thank you, goodbye. <laughs> like, And I like, I set up counseling and I talked to vocational rehab and all sorts of people, ADHD and ADD are uh, a bona fide disability folks, people, at least like therapists and vocational rehab and people like that are prepared to help you if you tell them you need help. Telling people outrightly like, hi, I struggle with things and I would actually appreciate you being aware of it. Well, well, also then you can call people out if they're not doing the things. Yes, also that. (laughs) And like asking for help is a life skill. Like saying like, yo, I'm having a hard time. Here's what I need. And I think that like, I'm, I'm the first one to march right to a professor and be like, here's my disability documentation. Here's what I need from you. A professor's look at me like I have three heads. And I'm like, well, like- Now no. I'm that person. I haven't been that person in the past. And it's been really to my detriment. Because this is super fascinating for me, hearing you speak uh, of your experiences more, it sounds like young adults and as you got older, because what I see a lot in my practice working with kids is this ability to accept help is so complex with kids with ADHD on so many levels. One one has to do with how teachers treat them, right? Like, especially the kids that have hyperactivity on board as well, like they're often getting in trouble, they're getting detention, and they're problematized, right, in the classroom. And so then when you talk about getting help or even coming to see a therapist, well, now I'm even more problematized because now I'm the one that needs to go see a therapist. And also like just a lack of trusting adults after that. I have a book that um, I will recommend in the resources part, but it's one of the best books I've read in reframing how we label kids who are problem children. Because I think like I'm in the special ed academic world and we still use language like challenging behaviors, problem behaviors. And or like calling kids troublemakers. And recently, someone I really respect professionally was like, I label all behaviors that interfere with education as interference behaviors. And I just, I loved that because it does not put the the blame on the kid. It just is like, here's a fact, the kid is having a behavior, it is interfering with their learning or someone else's learning, let's address it. But I think there's so much pressure on kids once you're like, this kid is having problem behavior or challenging behavior. Like, I, you know, I've been a problem behavior kid for 26 years. And like, I, I'm going to carry that with me. And so I think it's very important to to reframe what it what it means to kids to to not label them as troublemakers or problem children. And for them to understand too that 
like when we were talking about the executive functioning, like you need external tools to help you. But if the child is so resistant to help, it's very difficult to have them adopt one of these tools that can, you know, like I'll know as a therapist, I'll be like, this I know is going to help. But they're so resistant, right? Because another comorbid disorder we often see with ADHD is oppositional defiant disorder, which I am convinced at this time is coming from that background that we just spoke about, right? Like you just start to mistrust adults, you start to mistrust authority. And then you you're, you as a parent bring your child into therapy, but there's all this distrust, right? So like, where, how can I work, you know, in that in that situation? I find a way, but it's really nice to hear. And I think it'll be nice for kids who listen to this to hear that as adults, you're advocating for yourself and it's helping you and it's good and, and you can do it. I want to say like, like grownups, like advocate for your kids also, um, like, because kids can't always advocate for, especially young kids, right? There is this, like, I remember when my, you know, when my teacher made me face a wall for a whole year um, and my mom was like, can, okay, but can we not do that? The teacher was just like, no. And she was like, okay, you're the teacher. You must know. Like she, like, I think there's also been a, a big shift between sort of like, I feel like parents now question teachers a little bit more in, in sometimes in a good way, sometimes not in a good way. Then like when I was growing up, I feel like, well, the teacher knows best. But I think also like, remember to advocate for your kids uh, and teach your kids to advocate for themselves. Hey folks, thanks for joining us for another episode of Rad Child Podcast. Just a couple of announcements today. Uh, if you didn't listen to the pre-roll, um, just know that we just launched a Kickstarter to help fund the third season, which unfortunately won't be happening if we don't meet our funding goals. So definitely check out our Kickstarter. If you go to kickstarter.com and just search Rad Child Podcast Season 3, it'll pop right up. And we also launched some new rewards on our Patreon page. We basically revamped the whole page. Uh, so if you are interested in making a monthly contribution, which would really, really mean a lot to us, you could make a contribution of uh, as little as a dollar a month and get some really awesome rewards. And we have a, a deal going on right now where if you sign up at any tier, you will automatically receive a Rad Child button and a postcard with a personalized thank you note. Additionally, if you have something to advertise and would like to advertise with us, we have some really amazing deals going on right now on our Kickstarter page um, for sets of ads. So you can get as few as one, uh, as many as 10 for about $10 an ad, which is wildly inexpensive um, for advertising. So definitely check that out if you'd like to advertise with us or maybe just give someone a shout out. We also want to give you a little update. Um, every week we talk a little bit about a kid's book about, which is an awesome uh, book publishing company that makes kids books about all different kinds of topics. A lot of the kinds of topics that we talk about here. Our uh, coupon code has changed. So it is now RADCHILD2021. Um, so if you go to www.akidsbookabout.com and use the code RADCHILD2021, you will get $5 off uh, any order of two books or less. Uh, because once you buy more books, they give you good discounts anyway. And of course, I would be remiss if I did not uh, thank our wonderful network, the Upford Network. Definitely check out the Upford Network. Uh, you can do that by going to www.upfordnetwork.com. There's so many awesome shows about all different kinds of topics. You'll definitely find something that you like. So yeah, definitely check that out. And now just the usual stuff. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can do so by following us at Rad Child Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, if you'd like to contact us, you can email us at radchildpodcast at gmail.com or you can go to www.radchildpodcast.com under the contact us section. There's also information in that section about how to be a guest if you're interested in that. We're always looking for new guests. Um, you can also check out our Etsy store where you can get some of our merch, although I would recommend getting it through our Kickstarter page now uh, because honestly, 
honestly, it's cheaper. And, uh, and also you're supporting us. <laughs> but yeah, you can check out our Etsy store. Um, if you go on Etsy and search Rad Child Podcast. Uh, and then also, as always, please, please, please rate and review on uh, Apple Podcasts or the podcaster of your choice. It also helps us if you do that on our Facebook page as well, uh, just to help get the word out and help people know that we make quality stuff. Uh, all right, that's about it for me. I'm going to hand it over to uh, Rebecca and Crystal, and we'll get back to the show. Do you wish more picture books truly reflected your family's values? Have you ever thought you found the perfect book, but when you got it home, it completely missed the mark? Shift Book Box is a picture book subscription service for kids ages 3 to 8, built around themes of social justice and centering diverse characters and creators. Each box features two beautiful picture books as well as expertly crafted discussion guides. We know that families want to engage kids in conversations about social justice topics, and we recognize how challenging it can be to find the right books and to feel supported in having these conversations. We find the books. We provide the prompts. You get both delivered to your door. Subscribe today at shiftbookbox.com and use the code RADCHILD. RADCHILD. All one word. RADCHILD. RADCHILD. For 10% off your first order. Shift Bookbox. Curating little libraries. Cultivating big change. Speaking of kids, I want to sort of shift into talking a little bit more about kids. So I'm curious, like in, you know, in a child's terms, how could we, you know, to a kid who, uh, you know, does not have one of these diagnoses, like how could we explain what ADHD or ADD is to, to a kid in sort of a simple way? I struggled with how to phrase this because... I'm all about having the scientific terms for things. <laughs> but, okay, the, the way that I explain it to a lot of people is, like I was saying earlier about my train of thought being on five wires, just buzzing constantly. My brain is kind of like a radio that I do not control the knobs to. It is constantly playing the one line of that one pop song that I heard a week ago and don't know any words to on repeat especially in stressful situations. Like I have to take qualifying exams that are three hour long exams where it's just like, they ask you four questions, you unload your knowledge about those questions, go. And my brain will be like, did you mean play Pink Floyd at top volume? And I was, no, no, I did not mean that. <laughs> like, ah! And so I have routines of like playing very specific music that I know all the words to, I know all the notes, I can play the whole song at least, uh, and I can put it a little bit on the back burner while while I need my functioning to be uh, available, that I'll listen to those on repeat for days ahead of a test. So I um, live in autism world, both myself personally and professionally, and metaphors go right over my head. Um, so I, while I did understand this radio metaphor, um, I would probably not use it to describe to a kid just because I am imagining like them thinking about radios and being very confused. And so I think I actually would go kind of a little bit of the scientific route of like, you know, especially with some of the kids that I've worked with who are just very concrete thinkers. I'd be like, here are the things that happen in a brain. Here are the things that don't happen in your brain. And here are some, you know, I think it, it really is okay to 
explain to kids like I you know I would show pictures I think to to Moira's point of like here is a brain that is doing all of the things that your brain isn't doing here's what your brain looks like and as long as you are having this conversation in a way that does not make them feel less than or bad or disabled even if that's how they want to frame it I think it really is okay to be like okay we all have these things in our brain some people do this yours don't and I've, I've had very concrete conversations with kids. I appreciate that so much because I was struggling to try and phrase this in a way because for myself, things like having the word for executive dysfunction and having the word for dissociative amnesia and things like that, like those were massive for me, understanding what's happening. I'm just remembering, like, I equate this to, so my, I have a younger brother, I have two younger brothers, and when my mom was pregnant with my one, my youngest brother, I remember asking my mom, like, how did this happen? And my mom is a doctor, and so she, like, sat me down and was like, here is an anatomy book, like, let me explain this to you. And I'm so grateful for that, because I went back to school, and my friends were like, it's called private parts. And I was like, I actually can tell you it's called a vagina. And, like, <laughs> Like everyone was shocked that I knew all of these words, but I was like, God bless my mom who was like, I'm not going to sit here and give you some silly metaphor for how this works. Like here's no, oh my God, like here's the concrete, here's the concrete way that this happened. And that's how I think, like, I'm so grateful for all the people in my life who have explained things to me. Cause like, oh my God, I'm imagining myself at five and you're like my radio knobs are, I'd be like, why is your brain a radio? Is my brain a radio? Is my brain supposed to be a radio? Like, oh, I just was going to add because I'm in this position a lot in my job of explaining this, probably similar to you, Dylan. I have a little, a little thing that I do. If you don't have a picture of the brain handy, fingers make great neurons. So I'll just take my two hands and I'll talk about like how our brains have these cells called neurons. And when neurons connect, that's a thought. And so when I'm talking to a kid who has ADHD, I'll be like, well, your brain's all super connected. And I'll put all my fingers like in a web together to kind of show that that's what I'm talking about. And I found I found that quite useful. And my other tip I use a lot to make it concrete is go with things that they can observe. So if the question is like, talking to maybe a sibling of a child with ADHD, I'll ask them about what they've observed their sibling do and be like, oh, well, that's part of the ADHD, right? And so it's nice and concrete. It's something they've seen and it puts it into that context of their life. And I found that's really useful with the, with kids. And the development plays a huge part, right? Because the brain is able to think more abstractly as we age. So I'll use metaphors with teens, no problem right? But with younger kids, it can, it really depends where they are also in their the cognitive development and ability to understand. I'm very afraid of teens. So when I, <laughs> when I, when I, I'm, an, I'm very much an elementary school person, but I, I love, I love that more. I'm, I, I don't do that with kids too. I'm like, you know, the other day, like you were having a very hard time with blank. That's because of this. Or like, when you tell me you can't focus on that, that's because of this. And like, use things that the kids know are observable behaviors that they have or, or struggles that they have come to you with and be like, that's because of this. When I was a kid, maybe the internet wasn't such a big thing when I was as young as having my diagnosis or anything. But like using the scientific terms for things nowadays, kids could just Google that. Like worst case scenario, 
they really don't know what you're saying, they can Google it and figure it out very easily. Uh, can I just, I, I, I just need, I'm very wary of that answer always because like I have this conversation with trans folks fairly regularly. There's just so much misinformation on the internet about, about things that like, I would much rather it come from me than like, I tell adults to Google things all the time because I know that an adult is not going to like, look, like go to transphobia.net and like learn something about a trans person and tell me that's fact but like kids don't know what is not real and what is real and like can look at a wikipedia article about adhd and think they know everything and i just i'm always very wary with google it with kids because they don't know what's fact and what's fiction i mean for specific terms like executive dysfunction oh i think it's totally fine to say google define executive dysfunction but i would but i would but I would never tell a kid to like Google ADHD. I'm like, all you're gonna get is all you're gonna get is memes. I would also suggest guided guided Googling. I've done that with kids where it's like, let's just look at the computer together and we'll go on like a little search journey. And then it, it gives like a sense of empowerment, but at the same time you're guiding them on like, ooh, this looks like a good source. Let's have a look. And you can kind of educate them at the same time. Yeah, teaching a life skill about how to find a reputable sources. I'm just thinking of like everyone's racist uncle who's like, well, one time I Googled black people and now I know everything there is to know about black people. And I'm like, and I'm like, no, you don't, because <laughs> you went to you went to like racism.com. And I've, I've had kids come to me and they're like, this is what I learned about this. And I'm like, what did you Google? And they're like, and they're like, oh, I Googled this. And I'm like, oh, okay. You found like a hate site. Yeah. So we, we sort of like alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I'm curious, like how, like as, you know, educators, people, you know, or people in the field, right? Like how can we obviously like, you know, if I'm an educator, I'm not necessarily a professional, you know, but when would I know sort of the difference between like, if a kid has ADHD specifically, you know, uh, I feel like this happens with ADHD as opposed to ADD, like if a kid has ADHD or they're just like being a kid and they're a little hyper, um, like when do I know maybe to like call someone in to like diagnose or things like that, you know? I love this question, by the way. I looked at it and was like, oh, I'm so glad that he's asking this. Because I get often people coming to me about young children having ADD under the age of, let's say, eight years old. And I think it's really important to understand that you cannot expect a young child to be able to sustain their attention for a long period of time. You can expect them to be shifting from thing to thing to thing and moving around a lot. And actually in the DSM, it's not advised to be diagnosing any learning disabilities or ADHD before grade two. So that I think is an important kind of warning to think about um, with younger kids and to have them properly assessed. A questionnaire of ADHD symptoms is not a sufficient assessment of ADHD. There needs to be, maybe I'm touting my own field of work as a psychologist, but there's so many other things that can cause similar symptoms that you really need to look at what's going on. One thing we see a lot as psychologists is affective inattention. So that's when there's emotional stuff going on in the child's life, let's say at home, and they're very distracted in class. It's not because they're not capable of paying attention. It's because they have other stuff on their mind. When I think back to having ADD as a kid, and how I deal with it now and, and all of that. It's never a matter of 
that I would rather be doing something else. These are activities that I want to do this. I want to have my homework done and I want to learn about this or I want to sit and and listen to this thing, uh, whatever it is, but I literally cannot. And so that's what I have written down as how can we tell if, if this is different than child behavior? Like, is it actually distressing them that they can't do this thing? That's a major flag. If a kid is motivated to do something and they still can't do it, like that, that is a red flag. If like, I have no interest in doing my statistics homework, even if I take Adderall, because I don't care. And so that is like, you know, that's not a motivation piece. Um, I also think that like, I know part of the conversation that was had at least between, cause I was diagnosed before eight and started medication before eight. And so I know that part of the conversation that was had is like, my teachers were not asking me to sit still for 45 minutes as a six-year-old because no six-year-old can sit still for 45 minutes. And so like there, we were, there was conversation about like, are you able, like I know now I have a hard time sitting through two hour lectures. That just is how it is. And like, but I'm, I'm expected to do those things. And I know that, and I understand that. And I signed up for that, but like, as a six-year-old, sitting through 45 minutes of math class is absurd. So some of the conversation I have with teachers now in the education world is like, is this a kid who's exhibiting symptoms or do you need to restructure your day? And like, sometimes the answer is this is a kid who maybe is not exhibiting symptoms, but like needs shorter periods or needs a sensory break. And so I think there are definitely things that teachers can do. Um, I don't remember who said it before, but uh, in in the field of, of autism, at least, like things are an issue once they're interfering with activities of daily living, things you're supposed to be able to do at your developmental level. And so I think a lot about like, is this, you know, it, 45 minutes at six is not, is a long time. But like, if you're a high schooler and you're struggling to sit through a 45 minute period, like that might be something to talk about. And the thing is too, with younger kids, kids like I have diagnosed kids with ADHD when they're younger than that grade two cutoff because it's so much impacting their functioning and it's not developmentally expected yeah when you're like okay we're talking two minutes here and you can't pay attention okay maybe we're in a different realm you know I also wanted to talk about like we we didn't really dig into because we talked about it a little bit just as we were discussing but um, I wanted to talk about like some of the other kind of you know characteristics of um, of kids with ADHD specifically like for me like impulse control was the biggest thing that I think that I think that's why I was diagnosed so young because I was in the kindergarten I cut my hair off in the middle of class I would just draw on people I would kick people like I had zero impulse control like I would (laughs) I still like now I can catch myself thinking these things like I have this very specific memory of being like I was in uh, I lived in New York City for a while and I was walking by like these people dining outside and there were just like two businessmen and I was like I really just want to dump his food in his lap like I did not do that but like I just had these impulses where I'm just like you know those like silly things you think like I would just do them when I was a kid I would do things like when I couldn't pay attention to a lecture, I would like cut holes in my shirts. Just like, this would be fun. Experiment with symmetry. (laughs) I cut up all our bathroom towels one day. I just cut up all our bathroom towels and our bath mat one day. And my mom was like, why? And I was like, that's another thing. A lot of times when you ask, when you ask kids with ADHD, um, I don't know if this is true for ADD also, but why they did something, they'll just be like, I don't know. 
or I was bored. I, I very much am the impulse control too of like, and I'm, I'm blessed with actions, but I will say hurtful things and then later realize that they're hurtful and just like, don't process the things that come out of my mouth before they come out of my mouth. And like that got me in trouble as a kid a lot. Um, and like, I think that's why my parents first stuck me in therapy was like, you are saying mean things to your siblings and this is not fine. And I think that like impulse control is, is huge for young kids with, with ADD, ADHD. It's just like not a, it's a learned skill that so many of us just don't have. Yeah, I'm really grateful that I'm not so prone to say things impulsively. Uh, I think very, very, well, I was going to say, I think very hard about the things that come out of my mouth. That's not always true. I also sometimes do not, but for the most part, I can catch, I have a pretty good filter, but for my actions, God, when, during the period that I wasn't medicating, especially, I was not coping well. Uh, and at one point in undergrad, I remember being at a conference with a few of my friends, an LGBT conference, and one of my friends uh, who is otherwise very educated and and aware said something that was hurtful to me. And I literally just threw my sandwich in their face. And I was just like, okay, that was an overreaction, but I'm mad. Um, sorry, also mad. My body was just like, you know what you need to do in response to this? Throw your sandwich in their face. <laughs> it's funny because we were like, we were talking a little bit before about like coping mechanisms and things. And like one of the things I do that I, I also know is something that a lot of autistic folks do is I rehearse a lot of conversations. I, I do that a lot where like, I this is like what I do in the car a lot is like, I will like have one-sided conversations with myself when I'm driving to be like, if they react this way, then I can say this. And if they react that way, I can there are a lot of people who I think don't have an autism diagnosis who use coping skills that autistic folks do. Like the number, the number of people, the number of people I know who don't have autism who stim. Oh, I'm a big stimmer. I've been playing with my slinky the whole time we've been talking. And 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 that that is a behavior that like autistic folks use to cope. That I think a lot of other people are like, well, this works for me. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, so like, actually, this is going right into our next question is like, what are some things that we can do to help support kids with ADD, ADHD? And I think that like, for me, as we were talking about this in the autism episode is like, if you're, if there's, you know, a kid in your class who like benefits from doodling or from, you know, playing with a slinky, like, as long as they're like, sometimes those things actually help kids pay attention. You know what I mean? And I think sometimes it can be hard to like, know that line of like when it's a distraction and when it's not but like for me for example when I was in art class um we weren't allowed to listen for they like changed the rule at first we were allowed to listen to music and then they were like no iPods no you know back when iPods were a thing no mp3 players whatever and I was like okay but I need to block out everything else that's going out around to be able to pay attention to what I'm doing. All right. So like there are certain things that I think like, you know, in a classroom setting specifically that I think like making those kinds of exceptions. And again, it's just about understanding your students and their needs. It's like, I don't think that general rules of like, we can never do this are like helpful to anyone. But, but anyway, so like, what are some, you know, what are some other things we can, you know, do to help support kids with ADD, ADHD? And that can be in, in multiple kinds of settings. It doesn't just need to be in the classroom. So I have written down, uh, my, my written response was write down the things they need in a calendar or encourage them to, to have a planner and things like that. By what, by which I mean, from the rest of our conversation, I have better words for this help teach them good organizational methods and good coping skills like the ones that we have been talking about where maybe it's something that 
just is necessary for their life, that they need to learn how to speak up when they're in, when they're uncomfortable and they need to learn how to keep a list of the things because they won't remember and, and things like that. And also uh, to have a lot of patience is the other thing I have written down. Ha- please just give them grace to, to not be on the ball all the time. And when they're, when they're having, the, there are times when I will, executive dysfunctions and anxiety sort of colliding, um, I will feel paralyzed because my to-do list includes things. I don't know. It's non-empty. And I will suddenly be like, I can't do anything. I need to go because I'm late for blank. Uh, like, and I can't, I can't make myself do a single thing that I need to do. Just help them take a breath. Find a small thing that can be you can put on your hat or like whatever. You can eat, literally eat. So something that I've learned just by virtue of being working in in schools for this population for so long is there's something called um, the zones of regulation curriculum. Oh, I had it on my list. So it is um, actually it goes hand in hand with one of my favorite. I hate the word social skills, but with a social awareness, I'll use um, curriculum that was developed by someone who's amazing and I've worked with many times um, called social thinking. And social thinking goes hand in hand with zones of regulation. And zones of regulation is typically introduced in OT, but um, used very much in the classroom as just a way of helping kids check in with their body. Then explaining to them like, okay, it, it uses literal language of like zones. So you're in the red zone if you're like angry, you're in the yellow zone if you're like feeling a little off, you're in the blue zone if you're like tired, and then your goal is to be in the green zone, which I understand is like, not always possible but the actual curriculum teaches like strategies for okay you're feeling an xyz zone like what can you do to get yourself back to i like to think of the green zone as homeostasis um or the closest to homeostasis that you can be and so i've done really amazing work both with ot's and in the classroom of teaching kids language about being like this is how i'm feeling right now here are here are some strategies that I know or that I like to get myself back to feeling okay. And something that I think it does really well is kind of agrees that not everyone's version of the green zone is the same. So like it's 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 written for neurodiverse kids. So the people who like wrote it and researched it really do like implement tactics like a sensory space or fidgeting or doodling or music to help kids kind of get themselves back to a place where they're able to be in a classroom. I like that the the green zone, the one I use, we call it ready to work so that it, it shows that like when we're talking about green, we're not saying that green is the good zone. We're saying green is the zone where you're able to function in class, for example. And then because like with kids with ADHD, sometimes you're going to be in the red energy zone and have tons of energy. And that's not necessarily... Yeah, it's not a bad thing. Yeah, but it's nice to to equip them with ways. Oh, you need to work in class. Okay, what can you do to get in that green zone? Maybe it's a fidget. Maybe it's being mindful to how your body feels. Maybe it's like going for a walk. You know, I I love the zones. I use it a lot as well in my practice. And I think it just does such a good job of being like, actually, it's fine to get angry. Like people are in the red zone. Adults get in the red zone, but like when you're in the red zone, you can't 
like do your work or hang with your friends. And so the goal is to use strategies, but I think it does a good job of framing it as like, it's not a bad thing to not be in the green zone. It just is not when you're like your best self. I appreciate this language a lot. I use this with my toddler, in fact, and I have not often considered applying it to myself. But but we're really good in our household of, of being like, hi, how are you feeling right now? Because you seem to not be able to do the thing you want to do. And what, ta- what tactics do you have to get yourself to the place where you can do that thing? It's actually really funny because I was just, you can't see me right now, but I'm in the most cluttered, cluttered room of my house, which is my, uh, the room where I have like all my activities and toys and books and things for the kids. And I literally just have like, I don't even know how many of those like plastic Starlight bins and each one is a theme. And but anyway, all this to say that today I happen to be right before our, you know, um, our recording today, I happened to be going through the one that was all about emotions and because I've just been organizing all of them a little bit. And there is this really great um, thing that I found and gosh, the I don't know where I got it on probably um, on Teachers Pay Teachers, which is a great resource for printables and things like that. Um, but it's it's more about like emotions, but it it's like right now I'm feeling and you basically can put like what you're feeling and it has all different emotions. And then, it, and then there's like one that goes with it that's like to help myself feel better, I can use. And then it has things like we were talking about, like a like hugging a stuffed animal, a stress ball, noise canceling headphones, coloring, whatever, all those kinds of sensory bottles. Um, And again, like these are things that often we specifically, um, you know, we don't, we use like with kids, uh, you know, with autism or with different things, but like we can use them with everybody. Like they're, you know, they can be, and it's like finding that thing that's helpful to you, right? Like I have one of the kids that I nanny is, she really is all about textures. Like she wants, she likes soft things. Like she rub, I have like, like she always has her stuffed animals with her all the time. She likes to rub her face against them. Even like my coat has like fur on it. Every day she rubs her face against that part of my coat. Like she, for her, like it's soft things, right? And so... And like, so when she's upset, like we work on like, okay, do you want to hug a stuffed animal or like what can help you? And I think that those kind of, uh, even for older kids, right? Like we were talking about like um, using fidgets or different things, like there are different things that can be, you know, help. It's not just for like young kids and it's not just for, you know, people with autism or people with, you know, autistic folks or things like that. I think they can really be useful. With teens, what I'll do instead of using the zones is I'll take like the their temperature. So I'll take like your energy temperature from a scale to one to 10. How energetic are you? Or from a scale of one to 10, how distracted are you? And we develop the thermometers together at the beginning. And then at each session, I'll check in with them. Okay, what's your energy temperature? What's your distracted distraction temperature? And then what I'll also do is if I observe them being hyper, let's say, like I can see that they're fidgeting a lot or moving around a lot, then I'll ask them in that moment, because there's a training to it as well, right? Like with older kids and teens, you want them to be able to do this on their own, like to not need someone with them. So I'll just kind of call it out when I'm observing it and I'll say, hmm, you're looking a bit like a seven, you know? <laughs> and then and then it's like, well, what can we do? And then maybe we'll do like a mindfulness exercise and then we'll take the temperature again and say like, okay, now how are you feeling? I really, I like that. So uh, I have one more question before we sort of start to wind down. And I, we again, we talked about this a little bit earlier. You know, as grownups, how can we reinforce to kids, you know, who do have ADD, ADHD, that they're not like bad kids? You know what I mean? Uh, I think that has a lot to do with language. And I think hopefully, you know, teachers are better at this than they were when I was a kid. But I felt like I, I have this like very, very distinct memory 
<laughs> my mom took me out of this school after this happened. But I was in the principal's office like almost every day when I was in kindergarten because I was always doing wacky things like cutting my hair off and, you know, drawing on people, uh, as I mentioned before. And one day I went up to the principal's office and the principal who, by the way, just as like a little flavor to this story, this was a Christian school and he was also the pastor of the church. So she probably shouldn't have been saying these things, but went to the um Again, like I was, I don't know, five or six, I was in kindergarten and went to the, like upon seeing me enter, uh, you know, sort of addressed to the secretary and was like, oh, look, the baby's here again today. You should go out and get the baby some diapers. But just like the the weird amount of like bullying from adults that happens to kids specifically with ADD and ADHD is like wild to me. And uh, luckily my mom, uh, that was before I learned how to lie. So luckily, my mom believed me and uh, took me out of that school. I think I'm still at 26, unlearning that I am not too much as a person. And I think the first times that I knew I was too much is when I heard my teachers talking about it as a kid and like saying like, I don't know how to deal with them. And like, I don't know what to do with this kid. And I think it has just like internalized this like self-loathing of like, I'm always going to be too much for people. So I, I think it's what, you know, I think I've said to many teachers, I don't really at all care if you have horrible thoughts about your students, don't say them in front of these kids. And even in the teacher's lounge, because they can hear you when they're walking by. I used to have teachers in the t- when I was student teaching. I specifically remember teachers talking about, like, kids. And I'd be like, the door is open. And also, like, stop gossiping about kids. Like, I think there's such a big, there's such a big place for educating on the, these executive functioning pieces. Because I find that's where it falls short so often. Where, like, parents and teachers, they get frustrated like they said to you, like, I don't know how to help them. And they get frustrated because they don't actually understand where the difficulties are for that child. Like one example I think of is that people, and you guys can tell me for yourselves, people with ADHD often don't know how to start a task. So they'll procrastinate on it because they don't know where to begin. It's not that they're lazy, which I sometimes will get as a comment, but it's that they're they're not sure how to prioritize and they're not sure where to begin. But if we can help them with that part, hey, maybe they're going to be able to do this thing that you want them to do. But like a lot of times these comments from teachers or parents speak more to their frustrations than the actual child themselves, you know? But of course, like the kid doesn't know that, you know? Exactly. There's I've been um, listening to a lot of Russell Barkley, which is a, he's a psychiatrist um, who specializes in ADD and ADHD. Mind you, he's very medical. So that's my main critique of his approach. But he has some wonderful talks on executive functioning and ADHD. And I've been now just sending these videos to parents to be to say like educate yourself on what actually is going on in your child's brain so that you're not moving from a place of frustration right because the parents coming in hot they're they're frustrated and that's not helpful either not in quite the same way luckily uh but because I didn't get a lot of those specific comments also I wasn't hyperactive as a child uh, while I was very energetic and still am and fidgety but but my inattentiveness was definitely the larger problem uh by far what i would get from teachers in parent teacher conferences primarily was just the constant feedback of they're so smart but they never get their work done and so i developed this this oh god and you put the just hit the nail on the head with calling kids lazy for not getting work done 
or for not beginning to get work done because yeah, that, task initiation. Oh, there's so much negative self-talk, so much negative self-talk that I'm still working through. And this year has actually been amazing for me uh, as far as progress toward thinking and talking about myself more nicely. But on the list of like, I failed at work today because I couldn't get the thing done that I planned to or things like that, that, that I obviously am so lazy that I should work a lot harder to get my stuff done. And I wind up working four or five times harder than any of my classmates to get the same amount of work out. And I still feel like I am not putting in enough. That's really uh, an emotion that I would want kids to be able to recognize uh, and talk about. Yeah. And I think like sort of what we were talking about before, I think there's a lot of like I'm thinking about my my wife and I my wife like I said has chronic anxiety and a lot of times you know we have to separate like she'll be like beating herself up because she can't do something and I'm like okay but that's your anxiety that's not you and like trying to like separate that out like what are like symptoms of it it's like a symptoms of a thing that you have it's not like you're lazy it's like it's hard for you to start this because you have ADHD and so I think like that kind of language can be can be very helpful sometimes when kids are like beating themselves up about stuff oh yeah as far as how to help them know they're not bad kids you Myra and and Dylan especially really hit it perfectly with show them literal brain scans Show them there is a medical, there is a clear difference, observable difference with how your body works. You aren't choosing to do these things. And also I feel like part of it is like what we were saying before, like teaching kids to advocate for themselves. Like if a teacher says like you're a bad kid, just be like, no, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Nope, there's something different going on in my brain. How about that? Maybe educate yourself. It does make such a huge difference when they're when they're ready to like work with the ADHD and find ways to help themselves. That what when I get a kid that's been treated the way some of you have been treated, like I said before, it's just so much harder because I have to unpack all that negative self talk before we can even really get started on the ADHD work. Like, yeah, it's just it's such a it just makes such a big impact for a lifetime. And I think also just like as an adult, like I know when I. When I was in uh, college, we did have, I think we had like three special education classes that we had to take. And I don't know, you know, if the requirements, if the requirements are probably different, different places, I'm sure. And the quality of that education, who knows. Um, But just like continuing to educate yourself and update your education because things change, right? Like the knowledge changes and like continuing to like, as an educator, make sure that you and and anyone who's working with kids, like make sure that you have the understanding and the knowledge and are going out of your way to get that kind of professional development and uh, learn best practices. Uh, Because honestly, usually accommodations that you're making to be inclusive of kids, you know, with different needs are more helpful for everyone. (laughs) Generally speaking, like we were talking about, like making those kinds of accommodations of having like sensory breaks or, um, you know, being like, I don't know any kid who couldn't benefit from like a little break. So we sort of uh, wind up. I'm just curious, wind up, wind down. I know what words are, guys. I'm curious if you have any resources, you know, about this topic for, you know, could be for kids or adults, could be kids books or shows or websites or whatever. I would plug, as I mentioned before, I I don't know if a plug is the right word, but 
there's a great YouTube video. I'll send it to you afterwards, Seth, um, by Russell Barkley on the executive functioning deficits uh, in people, individuals who have ADHD that I often send to parents. So it's not for kids, but that was one resource. And also, you guys probably already know about Attitude Magazine on the internet website oh i'll send you that too it's like an online magazine um and has really interesting articles and like self-help articles for people who have adhd there's another youtube channel i because i just did like a deep dive into adhd so i'm all fresh with stuff it was funny your timing was so good because i just did that and then i got your email and i was like oh i'm totally in what's the other one there's this other great one i'm just looking for it right now it's a a girl who has add i'm gonna find it here for you guys really quick and she has this great oh yeah how to adhd it's a youtube channel and it's a woman who has ADHD. Oops, sorry, that's her. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to put the thing in the chat for you, um, which is more useful for kids because it's a video format and it's her talking directly you know, to the kids or to the individuals. Those are my top, those are my top three. I just have two. One is a, a book for adults, probably more geared towards educators than parents, but it's called Troublemakers, Lessons in Freedom from Young Children in School. I don't actually remember if any of the kids have ADHD, but is a great read about the ways in which we call kids troublemakers in school and what it means and why we shouldn't do it and how that impacts kids' learning and lives. And then a very cute kids book. I think it's called All Dogs Have ADHD. It just like is this very cute book about like, here's pictures of dogs and ADHD symptoms. And it just like is a very easy way to be like, look at all these cute dogs. Also, these are things you struggle with. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really good one. That whole series, there's another one, all cats are on the autism spectrum, uh, which they just changed the name of. Um, and then the other one is all birds have anxiety. I have, I think I have all three, but yeah, those are my, I've read All Dogs Have ADHD with Kids and they're like, this is cute. <laughs> I don't have any good recommendations, unfortunately. As a person who has this disorder, I am so grateful for people who are more educated about it than I am. <laughs> the, uh, the one that I wanted to talk about, it actually, gosh, I don't remember which one of you was sort of talking about someone said something that made me think about this book, but just the idea that like our differences are like really beautiful and like it would be really boring if we were all the same. There's this great book called Just Ask. That is a good one. Yeah. And it basically goes through, it's a little lengthy and a little bit, I mean, it's like kind of, it's fiction, but it's a little nonfiction-y, but basically it goes through and it's just a, the, I, the premise is that it's a bunch of kids going to plant a garden and that right, a garden would be boring if it only had one kind of flower. And so it goes through, right? And it's like, my name is this and I have, you know, asthma or my name is this and I have, you know, this and there is one kid with ADHD, there's a kid with autism, there's, you know, all different things like Tourette's. So there's a kid who's deaf, there's a kid in a wheelchair. So it just goes through all these different kids. And it's the idea that, right, it would be boring if we were all exactly the same. Um, but it's a really, it's a really beautiful book. Um, I definitely recommend that one. I think it's really good 
But uh, yeah, I really, I really like this one, especially as like a classroom read. I think it's really good because right in any given classroom, there's going to be kids with all sorts of different things going on. Um, and I think it's a great way to sort of introduce that as opposed to, you know, a book, not to say that like, I think as a classroom read, it's more helpful than, you know, a book that's specifically like, we're going to learn about ADHD today because there's one kid in class with ADHD and that's singling them out and weird. But yeah, I really, I really like that one. And I just, you know, I always am uh, a big advocate for just reading books about all different types of kids and, you know, just normalizing differences because they, they are normal. Like everyone's different. Everyone has something going on. Why are good books like that so hard to find? I feel like I spend so much of my time because I do a lot of uh, bibliotherapy and especially now because everything's at a distance, right? And so using books has been very helpful, but it's so difficult to find good children's books about neural difference or physical disabilities. It's, it's surprising, actually. And I don't mean that the books don't exist on the topics. I mean, good books, you know, ones that are a fun narrative that kids can get into. Do you have any like personal projects or work that you'd like to plug? It can be relevant. It can be not relevant to this topic. Totally fine. Um, and uh, where can people find you on the internet if you want to be found? I don't specifically have anything. So I'm going to defer to the to the others who are more specialists. Yeah, I don't really have much to plug. I have, um, I don't even know what to call it, but like a resource group called Parenting with Confidence, uh, where I have like a little YouTube channel where I post little videos for parents. And we have a Facebook group. What else? I have an Instagram also, all with parenting. The Instagram is Parenting with Moira. I haven't been as active on it because since the pandemic, I've been very, very, very busy. MoiraStevenson.com. We do do assessments for ADHD if parents are interested, and we're located in Montreal. And I think that's about it. I usually do groups for parents, um, but with the pandemic, I've put that on hold for the time being. But uh, information is updates are always put on the uh, Instagram and the Facebook group. My my personal project is the sex ed curriculum that I'm working on that is not anywhere yet because it's not written, but stay tuned. <laughs> and I am very active in teacher education and autism advocacy on my Instagram, which is at trans teacher tales, which is just pretty straightforward. And I do a lot of talking on there about education and academia and autism and therapy and all sorts of other things that happen in my brain. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation and have a rest of a uh, lovely rest of your day. Yeah. I, I almost just said have the rest of your day, which is <laughs> actually great because you're definitely going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and remember, stay rad. I'm Tom Zalatni, executive producer of the Upford Network and host and producer of Up for Discussion, a podcast about great food and the people who love to make and eat it. But wait, isn't Up for Discussion a comedy podcast? It sure was, but things change. It's a food show now, and it's a very, very good food show. Every week, I dig into a different ingredient, dish, meal, or cuisine with help from friends and guest experts who know way more about this stuff than I do. Do you like food? Of course you do. You're a person. So you will like this show. Go listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Up for discussion. It's a food podcast now. Brought to you by the Upford Network. 
I'm October Jones, Hi, and this I'm is... I'm Fish With Legs. I'm a fish with legs. Fish. I'm the elemental creature of water, and I'm here to tell you about my podcast called October Jones and Fish With Legs, starring me and my best friend, <laughs> October Jones. Nailed it. October and Fish is a fictional series that follows me and Fish With Legs as we try to stop an evil two-headed snake from releasing a terrible monster. And make friends, and go on adventures, and get captured a lot, and escape a lot, and encounter racism. And what? And learn very special lessons every third episode. I have not learned a single lesson. Yes, you did. We learned about being friends, and authoritarianism, and colonialism, and how to defeat a giant crab. Authoritarianism? They're in authority for a reason, Fish With Legs. If everyone followed the rules set in place by the human government, then there wouldn't be- Fun for adults and kids. <laughs> New episodes on Mondays. You can find it wherever you find podcasts, and of course, on the Upford website. Okay, that's it. <laughs>